You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Michiel. Michiel? Michiel. 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 Like Hiel. Hiel, which is Dutch for Michael, so. So I'll do the English version. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 102. I'm your host, Chris Webster. Paul Zimmerman couldn't make it to the conference I was at. Today, I talked to Michael Cappers of Interis Registries about using that platform for artifact and excavation management. Let's get to it. Hey, this is Chris Webster here for the Archaeotech Podcast, and I am sitting in the bare bones exhibit hall where some of the exhibitors have left. Most everyone's drunk or hungover and not here yet on Sunday morning, the last day of a conference, which is typical of any archaeology conference. And I'm sitting here with, uh, in the English pronunciation, Michael Cappers of um, QLC and Interis Registries. Michael, how's it going? It's going very well. Thank you. Great. So... Give me, I want to talk about Interis Registries, but so people know what this is, give me your two-sentence elevator pitch on, on what it does, and then we'll get into it later on. We have created an archaeological information system that can be used to collect, manage, analyze all data for one or more archaeological projects, uh, ranging from project management, field data, artifact analysis, images. It has its own integrated GIS and it has features for repository, storage, uh, box administration, etc. Okay. We're going to get into that a little bit later. But what's your background? How did you get into this? How did you start in archaeology? How and did you're I from the Netherlands. Yes, originally from the Netherlands. I've been in the U.S. since 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think since I was four years old, I could pronounce the name <laughs> Tutankhamun. Nice. And that's where it all started. Nice. Um, so my parents had one of these images um, above their uh, record player, mm-hmm. and that interested me a lot. So big jump forward. I have never been to Egypt so far. I didn't do anything with Egyptology or any archaeology from that region. Mm-hmm. I ended up studying archaeology in uh, Leiden, Leiden University in the Netherlands. Yeah. And there initially went towards um, Caribbean archaeology, but then decided or was drawn to more the technical aspects, the more methodology of archaeology and started to specialize uh, that direction okay. where um, we were using, um, that was the early 90s, we started using uh, GIS and computer technology in archaeology um, as well as uh, infrared the light systems and so forth. So that's kind of uh, um, laid the foundation for what I end up doing. Okay, great. What was your educational background with the University of Leiden? Like, yeah. So you went through your undergrad and then you had some yeah, the graduate system, work as well? Yeah, the system is a little bit different. Yeah. When I was there, uh, we currently have a Bama Bachelor Master system. But when I studied in Leiden at Leiden University, that was not set up that way. Okay. So the first year was a propodotic propodotic year or however mm. that is. Pro- I'm not sure if that is even a proper word here, but <laughs> <laughs> it was just a, like an introductory year okay. uh, where we got introduced to all kinds of uh, different archaeological um, regions, actually yeah. literally regions and methodologies. Okay. So we, one of the uh, important differences is that we have um, archaeology is separate in mm-hmm. Europe from anthropology. Anthropology is something completely different. There's some overlap also with uh, history, but it's all separate. We have a faculty of archaeology in Leiden, okay. and that's where I studied. So after the oh. first year, you kind of are supposed to make up your mind which direction you want to go. And often that is um, uh, literally a regional 
location on the planet. Mm-hmm. And since we had some people doing work in the Caribbean, because the Netherlands still has a few little specks in the Caribbean that are part of the kingdom, um, so it was relatively easy to do work there. And I ended up doing uh, Caribbean field work, also in the Netherlands and uh, different locations, but uh, mainly in the Caribbean during the studies. So, so during the whole studies of archaeology in Leiden, which typically lasts about four years, so first year introductory year, then three years until you got your uh, DRS, uh, doctorate, whatever. It's not okay. a PhD, but it's a little bit more than an MA, but it's comparable hmm. with master, somewhere in between. Okay. Um, but it took me six years because I added so much more time for field work and for technological developments and um, get acquainted with all that kind of stuff. Okay. So um, in the end, um, when I was done, I started uh, working in the Netherlands at one of the larger projects that uh, existed then, and I was hired as a GIS specialist for mm. at that time to create GIS maps and do data work. Okay. Um, after that, a very large project started, the so-called uh, Betuwe Line project, which is a railroad project from the ro- port of Rotterdam to the German Ruhrgebiet, and so, this was a huge project. So when you say one of the big projects, you kind of mean like like CRM, like y- what we yeah. Did it was actually this was all CRM work, yeah. even, actually, because right when I finished my studies in Leiden. Um, the Treaty of Valletta was ratified. So the Netherlands was one of the first countries that ratified the treaty, mm-hmm. and which says that a certain amount of money, development money in a project needs to be spent on archaeological research, oh. if it affects any known or unknown archaeological sites. Sure. The unknown part, of course, to uh, find out if there are any sites that will be impacted. Yeah. So that huge um, railroad project was actually the first project that was set up based on that new treaty. Okay. So uh, I think we had about 100 million euros translate. No, 100 million guilders. So it's about 50 million euros right. available for archaeology only. Hmm. So we could do a lot. Yeah, that's a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> and that was actually the first big CRM related work that we could do there because there was a lot of money. The railroad company paid mm-hmm. for it. And a lot of the universities, uh, based on that, set up their own CRM firms, some of which still exist. Others are gone. But that was the, the start of CRM work in the Netherlands. And this was in the 90s? Yeah, that was like halfway in the 90s, 96, 97-ish. Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Wow, it's funny because right around 96 uh, is when I was in the Navy, ah. the U.S. Navy. And one of the places we went was St. Martin. Oh, and really? Is oh, yeah, St. Yeah. Martin half owned by the Dutch? Yes, the southern <laughs> half is uh, part and it's tiny, tiny and it's already yeah. split in half. So it's even tinier, mm-hmm. uh, but it's even a separate country within the kingdom. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah St. Martin was really nice. I like that. Yeah, it's fun. Okay. I'm going to guess that while you're on these projects and you're the GIS specialist that you are... You know, you guys are collecting a lot of information, you're collecting artifacts, and you are probably realizing that there might be issues around this data collection and things like that. So were you guys using some sort of database or something to input stuff besides the GIS or integrated with the GIS that led to kind of thinking about all this? Yeah, yeah. So the this big project, this big railroad project was actually the start of uh, database systems for archaeology in the Netherlands okay. because um, I was not part directly of that, but that was the first project where from the management team set up by the railroad company, a 
all over covering a database uh, tool was created okay. to collect all data from all the sites throughout the whole project. And we're talking about um, sites ranging from Mesoneolithic, six, seven, eight thousand years old up to medieval or even a little younger. Mm-hmm. So it's all very different, very different methodologies, very different time spans and periodizations, but they all had to fit in that one system. And there was a lot of, I say that, people didn't like that at first, especially the academics mm-hmm. that through their newly set up CRM firms were wanting to participate in this huge project. Yeah. But there was a lot of friction between um, the the MT, the management team of the railroad company, which was uh, populated by mostly archaeologists, sure. but on a management level, yeah. to oversee this whole huge project. And they designed this database system. Okay. And that was very, well, compared to what we have now, it's very was very small, but the core is still kind of the same. Okay. So it was basically the... The, the field data collection and uh, rough sorting. Okay. And then there was a GIS component. Sure. But that was based on MapInfo. MapInfo is a desktop mapping. I remember mm, that. Okay, and not everybody knows it because yeah. here most people work with Arc- ArcGIS yeah. uh, as RAI products. But in Europe, we also have that and use that. But in archaeology, MapInfo is a lot more common. Okay. It's actually also much more simpler and it's a lot cheaper. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Usually we were able to do anything that we needed to do uh, GIS-wise with MapInfo. So based on some of the MapInfo programming tools, those were used to add the GIS aspect to this whole system. Gotcha. The system was called Digit, very original. Digit? (laughs) Digit. Nice. Now, wait a minute. This is the Netherlands. What is the Netherlands (laughs) word for it? The Dutch word for it. The Dutch word, there was, this was really the name for the- was, It was called Dig It? Yeah, it was called <laughs> Dig It, based on the English, of course, yeah. Nice. Well, you need to know we Dutch, we, if we don't speak foreign languages and mainly English, then we do not, yeah, count in the world. So we are so tiny, we have to um, <laughs> adopt other languages as well. So if you wanted it to be used outside of the Netherlands, you had to give it an absolutely. English name? Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> yes. That's yes. Awesome. I like it. All right, so so how does this develop into? Uh, well, there was you were something before in Terrace Registries, yes. And how does how does this develop things? Into that? Yes. Yeah. So there were several attempts uh, after the railroad uh, project. I joined up with a colleague at that time that I met at the railroad project, who yeah. was uh, also very handy with programming and everything. So we were kind of for several projects. The no, actually, that was the project before that. Mm-hmm. And at that project, before the railroad company project, we decided to team up and set up a private company, the two of us together, because then the railroad company project could hire us mm. to do all that technical work, which they did. They sure. we, For about, I don't know, three or four sites, uh, we did all the digital stuff for, nice. in this uh, project. And the total was, it was about 40 sites yeah. on the total project that were investigated and excavated okay so we did that and then eventually we decided so we had to deal with this dig it thing Mm -hmm. Um, but eventually at the end of the towards the end of the project we decided we need to come up with our own product and we started building something well that was a failure not so much technically but more personally because the whole business construction setup that didn't really work out oh yeah that's tough yeah yeah. So then, that was around late, yeah, around 2000. Okay. So early 2000, 2001, I think 2002. Yeah. Then we started with uh, another 
um, two other people we joined as three people to start up a company and build something that has evolved into what it is now. Mm. It was eventually called Arcurlink. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2012, we decided we have to expand because it's too specialized to just maintain and manage only for a very small country as the Netherlands is. Mm-hmm. So, and I had some connections already in the, in the US um, based on the, because of my uh, friends and colleagues from the US that I worked with in the Caribbean and the Pacific. Yeah. So I was visiting a lot and knew my way around here. And that's when we started to visit um, the SAAs for the first time, which okay. was actually here in Sacramento in 2012. Yes, that I was, was at the, what, okay. that one. <laughs> yeah, that was the first time we were there with a booth, yeah, uh, Arculink booth, and it's still based from the Netherlands. And in that time, in that year, about six months later, we set up the, uh, the American branch company for that. Mm-hmm. And we moved over here. I personally moved over to the US in 2013 okay. and dealing with all the uh, American um, aspects of the whole products. Now, during the years, the development kind of, um, I would say, diverged or uh-huh. yeah, split a little bit because the demands in Europe and Netherlands were a little bit different uh, compared to here. Sure. So, uh, as of now, uh, this is completely separated over the last, yeah, since the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And in order to be more flexible as well, um, we've changed the name from Arculink Americas, as it was called here, into Interis Registries. Okay. That is done mainly uh, because of name differentiation with the Dutch products sure. in the Netherlands, of course, and also because um, we do get some requests. Sometimes it has not really developed into anything serious, but from other branches, other niches like biology, geology, forensics. Yeah. And the system could be used for that as well. And it's all based on material that has been collected mm-hmm. somewhere on a geographic location. Uh, the data needs to be stored, the uh, material needs to be described, and then it's physically stored on another location in a mm-hmm. repository or something. And that's all the same with biological uh, specimens, geological, yeah. uh, forensics, uh, yeah. archaeology. Useful for all kinds of things. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to get more into the program yes. in a minute, but what, where does the name in terrorist registries come from? Well, um, at the time, yeah, <laughs> it was actually the, uh, the, also the name of my own company in the Netherlands when uh-huh. I worked together with the three people in the Netherlands and I uh, kind of lifted that name, brought a name with me okay. in Terris. Um, I saw that name. It was in the description of a painting that I owned. Oh. Uh, Mangerant in Terrace, blah, blah. Something nice. about uh, a group of people. And it sounded nice. And when I looked it up, it meant something like uh, f- uh, from the lands in the yeah. earths. And that sounded very um, um, how should I, um, applicable. Okay. <laughs> sounded yeah. applicable to me. Well, so. now, now that you say that, in Terrace sounds very Latin in origin. Yes, yes, yeah. correct. <laughs> yes, <laughs> true. Yeah. And then the registries is, yeah, the, to register that data. Yeah. 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 Nice. Let's talk about the program for a little bit. Um, we'll take a break in a couple of minutes here, but yes. let's talk about uh, who... Now, now, when you came over to this country, to the United States... Uh, you said you you know the, there was a fracturing of the software a little bit, probably because they do things a little differently yes, in Europe. Yes, a little different. Yeah, but you are. I mean, I see you at different conferences where there's CRM is a high component of this thing, but also other conferences, including the SCA where we're at now, and the uh, and the SAAs in particular. There's a lot of academics there too, and a lot of those academics do not work in this country. So 
since you've got this program here, I'm assuming it is flexible if somebody said, I want to take this program and I do want to work over in Europe or I do want to work in Africa or, you know, Egypt or something like that, then they can adapt it to their needs. Definitely. Yes, yes. Yeah. That is absolutely true. Um, There's clients that use it here uh, in the U.S., Uh but there's also people from the U.S. that take it abroad to do their work over there. Yeah, we think the program is flexible enough to accommodate uh, most, if not all, methodologies or a combination of different methodologies. So although it evolved from the way we excavate in Europe, where especially in the Netherlands, we have usually excavation with very uh, large surfaces, Mm -hmm. large uh, units or trenches, um, 20 by 30 meters. That's very common. And then about uh, dozens and dozens of those all connected to uh, excavate whole uh, settlements. It can also be smaller, but that's not a very strange thing. Okay. And um, usually not an enormous amount of levels. Uh, we might go deeper a little bit, but mm-hmm. we don't find a whole lot like Mediterranean uh, tell excavations, which are completely different. Yeah. But even those would uh, fit in here. Okay. Although, I mean, we have had some people that use the system and um, divert away from it again because they yeah, didn't feel comfortable with it. But also distance might be a complicating factor if there's not enough of support available sure but we have tested it uh, at many different uh, sites and methodologies and projects around the world mm-hmm. and uh, where we were involved ourselves it always works fine all right let's take a break real quick and we'll come back for the second segment with michael cappers hey chris webster here with your wild note pro tip check out wildnoteapp.com to check out all the features of the application so what i want to talk about today is the review and edit screen on the web in case you didn't know you can click on any of the columns in that screen. Well, except for a couple, but most of the columns in that screen and sort all your surveys by any one of those things. So what's really handy for archaeological site recording, for example, is to sort by location or site number, whatever you happen to call it. So you can see all the records associated with that site. You can also sort by person or date or survey ID number or survey survey type, like form type. So check out all those features and more at wildnoteapp.com. That's wildnoteapp.com. Now back to the show. All right. Welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast. This is Chris Webster. And again, I'm at the Society for California Archaeology meeting. So you'll hear people in the background because as people wake up from their hungover stupor from the night before, they're going to wander into the book room and see what's here and uh, and come in. So let's uh, keep talking about Interest Registries. I want to know how the system is used. I see stuff on your table every time I come here. We've got barcode readers and things like that. So let's start you know, obviously, you know, audio medium, we're not going to get into what it looks like and how stuff works like that. But if you're using this on an excavation, what is the general workflow? Somebody excavates out an artifact. Okay. How is, how do we know where that artifact is? I'm curious to start, how is Interest Registries organized internally so that I know that it's from this unit and this level, and then we'll go from the artifact and see where that artifact's journey is through the system. So the system, as explained in the first part, the system evolved from this huge project in the Netherlands, railroad project, and was basically a field data collection system and rough sorting system. Okay. This is not a copy of that system, but it um, builds on the foundations, the same data structure in the core of the database. Okay. Currently, it has grown to the top level where um, we can now incorporate uh, full project management and all the way down with very detailed specialist and lab analysis tables for... What do you mean by full project management? I'm curious about that. In the system, when you create a project, that's actually a field project. 
Okay. And it can be all kinds of different field products. It can even be just one little piece that was found by someone and brings it to the organization who uses the, pro the system sure. to a full excavation or survey or anything. Okay. However, above that, there is another project level, more overall project management. Okay. And there you can um, manage and uh, track uh, a large-scale project that might incorporate one or more field projects. Oh, I see. Okay. At that level, you can also uh, connect external documents and like uh -huh. communication and reports and etc. etc. Wow. Okay. So that's a little extra at the top. Nice. Then when you go down to the quote-unquote project level, which right. is basically a field project, that's where you start describing uh, the specific field project details. Mm -hmm. So what site it is, um, who does the excavation, what's the reason, um, etc. Those kind of descriptive information. So as an example, yeah, I'm going on a project with a company as a, as a technical support for WildNode in a couple of weeks. It's a 90-mile uh, transmission line, so yeah. that would be the high-level project, yeah. and we're doing the survey in there. So the survey would probably be a project within that yes. project, and then if there were any sites that needed to go to excavation or phase two testing or something like that, they would be other projects within that project Correct. system. Okay, Correct. Okay, cool. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. All right, so you've got the project within a project, and somebody finds an artifact. Yes. What's that artifact's journey through the system? Exactly. So within a project, you create the proveniences. Mm -hmm. We have um, five fixed levels of provenience, which sounds very rigid, but it fits any excavation. Nice. So at the top, we start with uh, the trench or the unit or the block or whatever you want to call mm -hmm. it. Just a little side note. Sometimes people look at this and they see wording and semantics and, oh, we don't call it that way. But <laughs> I encounter the same thing. Yes. <laughs> but we work with language lists and it's very easy to modify that. Yeah. Anyway, so at the top level of the proveniences, uh, the units, the trenches. Yeah. As soon as you start digging, uh, you create a surface. Some people say, oh, we don't work with surfaces and whatever. No, you always work on a surface. You might not <laughs> notice it or call it that way, but you are creating surfaces. And those surfaces are most of the time horizontal and vertical sure. profiles. So we call those planar in okay. the system. The planar are the surfaces that are created. And they could also be named levels, but some people call level the volume that's excavated. Gotcha. So there is a difference. And why is there a difference? Because the services that are created are the services that we as excavators see. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what we draw and mm -hmm. that's what we take photographs of. And those are infinite flat. Okay. Those are basically 2D, two-dimensional representations of what we excavate. Right. And they cut through features and layers and strata, etc., which are the three-dimensional objects. Okay. So units, the services, the plana, and on those services, whether it's a horizontal or a profile, we recognize the layers and the features. Okay. That's the third level. The layers and the features are treated the same way in the system because they all consist of dirt that are described the same way. They just have a different interpretation. Right. Sometimes it's a layer. It can be a natural layer or a uh, cultural layer, a middle layer. And sometimes it's a feature. It can be a pit, a half pit or a post hole or burial. Mm -hmm. But it's all dirt and it needs to be described. Yeah. Of course, sometimes you find uh, your material in there, in those features. <laughs> and then <laughs> Now, these features or strata or layers, they are then subdivided into the two final levels that are kind of hierarchically on the same level, mm -hmm. data-wise, which are, first of all, the fills. And again, this is semantics. You might call it differently. Sure. And segments. 
Now, the difference between fills and segments is that um, the fills are the natural subdivision of a feature or a layer. Okay. And the segments are the arbitrary or administrative subdivisions of a feature or a stratum. Okay. And those can be uh, quadrants or halves. If you bisect a feature or a trench or a pit to excavate, mm -hmm. that's administrative. Okay. And when you bisect a feature and you discover it has different layering in it, mm -hmm. that will be the fills because it's natural. Now you can make it as complex as you want, but this yeah. system, uh, having set up the system this way, allows the maximum flexibility uh, when needed. Yeah. Nine out of ten times you don't need that all, but that's why the system always creates automatically one fill and one segment because it's always at least one fill and one segment. Okay. So without going into much detail more now, because it's very difficult uh, without visualization. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but this allows a lot of flexibility. And those are the five different levels. So it's f actually four hierarchical levels and the lower level has two different items, okay. fills and segments. Now those deepest levels, uh, we, so we use these barcode tags, which are not mandatory, but uh -huh. it's basically your FS number. Okay. And the tag is arbitrary. The number is arbitrary, but usually it is set up um, with a prefix that indicates the project or a project code or something. Right. And then just a follow number, start at one. Make sure it's unique throughout the whole database or even in the world. That number is then entered into the system. Um, and again, the number can be a barcode tag, but that is not mandatory to use barcodes. It just speeds up work. Not yeah. so much in the field, but later on in the lab. Yeah, for sure. Um, but even if you don't use barcodes, you still create those numbers, FS numbers, mm -hmm. and assign the numbers, uh, enter the numbers in the database and connect them to a provenience. Right. And then the number sticks with the material. Sure. That's the connection between the artifacts or the samples taken from a provenience and the connection with that provenience. Mm -hmm. So that's the field level okay. in a nutshell for as much as possible yeah yeah as much as we can in an audio yeah. version here so how does uh what, what's the setup look like in the field when you're using interest registries what do you have out there to make all this work um it depends on the size of the project and the structure uh -huh. of the project if it's very small some people still use paper and just later come back and, 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 and yeah and come back and do data, data yeah. entry or they use a tablet in the field and just enter it right away in the field uh -huh. some do a combination and they write a lot of stuff on the tags and or the bags and when they come back they just uh, first enter and scan all the bags into okay. uh the system and enter the data right then so there are different ways to do that okay and once it's in the system then you can start uh processing the material okay so there's a first uh, a rough sorting level or uh, an artifact sorting level in the system so this can be of course bulk material mm -hmm. that is attached to one tag or one fs number or a special find just one thing sure. or a sample and it needs to be treated uh, most of the time you want to wash dry and sort mm -hmm. if it's just one piece you might want to wash and dry it or if it's very delicate you do something else with it if it's a sample you might do something else with it mm -hmm. uh, and uh, treat it the way it's needed to be treated okay but let's focus on a bag with bulk material uh, that explains um, the best how the procedure is done next and it's very common um, yeah Wash your material, dry the material, sort it into different material categories and enter it in the database per category 
possibly count or weigh the material or both and um, describe to a for a basic level describe the material in a sense uh, choose the material category mm -hmm. maybe choose a subcategory if you want to define it already a little bit more on this level these are things you can customize in the yes. system i assume yeah, yeah you, those are all fields available on this level mm -hmm. when we go deeper down to the specialist level mm -hmm. that is completely open and that is totally customizable nice uh, because everybody wants a different lab or different specialist table yeah absolutely so that is something uh, where the fine and minute details will be uh, stored and registered for the material. Okay. But on this level, the rough sorting uh, might be sometimes just the sorting in the main categories mm -hmm. and then go to specialist level. Or you can do a little bit more with that subcategory and maybe object and object part and etc. Those kind of information okay. is available on this level. Even some date fields, date, dating fields are available. Right. But those are not mandatory. There are only the only mandatory fields throughout the whole system are the technically mandatory fields that are needed to be able to connect all the data through the system in the different tables that are populated in the background okay through connections and etc so when entering on the previous level on the field level on fs number it needs to be connected to a provenience and you need to fill out at least those five levels trench unit etc uh, mm -hmm. planum or level uh, feature or layer and fill in segment Sometimes you don't have all that information and you can just use an indent or a 999 or even the word unknown or whatever you like. Sure. It's all alphanumerical, but it needs to have a connection. Uh -huh. And then next, for the rough sorting, you need to uh, choose the number that you're describing or sorting and choose a sub number sorry uh, a main category okay the sub number is when you want to already split up main categories on this level into subcategories mm -hmm. and you can use sub number or sub letter and once that data is entered and you store the record a new tag will be printed and that is the tag the barcode tag that will remain with the material well cool so this runs on uh this runs on windows machines yes this is yep. windows based yep so is it is it software that's downloaded is it web-based how does somebody get their hands on it yeah we what we currently do is we usually set up a dropbox folder with the client for data exchange and it, okay. just for distribution of the new software uh but also for database if they need help when they work in uh, single database files mm -hmm. they can just we can just transfer that and we can do th stuff so the system can work with those kind of files but it can also work in a network with a client server a database okay. setup that's all the technical stuff that we might cover later or yeah uh, yeah, yeah yeah all right so somebody's decided to go down this road and they've got a project they want to use this on how does uh what does this cost is it subscription by the month do you buy it one time i mean how does it work so we split up the costs in three blocks the first one is probably the most important which is the licensing uh, we charge a license fee, a yearly license fee of $450 per work spot per year. So what does per work spot mean? Well, um, like a means, station. Computer? Yeah, it means like, uh, uh, the location, a computer, but it okay. can be flexible on multiple computers. So okay. suppose you have 10 computers and you have four licenses. You can in, uh, install it on all those 10 computers, but you cannot use it on more than four computers at the same time. How is that uh, regulated by login or is there a key or something or how that works is that it's more like concurrent users okay and it would ping through the internet if there's no internet connection it will tell you oh you cannot work with it 
Yeah. Unless you have, because that's another option, mm-hmm. the system is, of course, uh, you can uh, put it fixed on a computer so you can take it outside of network or internet connection sure and then uh, use it uh, outside in the fields okay and that will just bring your counter down with one or how many uh, computers fixed are fixed installed for a certain amount of time you can also set that for okay i want to do that for three months and then automatically detaches again okay that's the plan all right uh, so that's the first part. Uh, we do have lower um, uh, licensing prices for uh, academic use, for educational use, mm. for students and for training and stuff. That's $150 per year per work spot. Wow, that's super affordable. Yeah, we hope that yeah. by keeping, we try to keep these recurring fees as low as possible. Yeah. So, yeah, as many as possible people will be able to use this. Okay. Now, the second block would be because that, yeah, that is, well, unfortunately, uh, it is necessary. You need some training and setup and support in the beginning. Yeah, you learn how to use it. It's not a difficult system, but it's a vast system and you need to yeah. understand how everything works. Uh, in short, people that still use our system and have done so for many years were able to invest in such setup and support. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people who have let it go are usually the people that were not able to do that. Mm, yeah, that and that's sense. yeah, and it, it's a pity, but um, yeah, it's a you need a little bit of training. Yeah, yeah. Well, anybody that's used Esri products knows that you can't well, just exactly. walk right in and yes. use it. Yeah, <laughs> we try to keep it as simple as possible, but um, but it has to be complex. Yes, complex yeah. to be functional. Well, exactly. It needs yeah. it needs all these data levels. It needs to be um, elaborate enough to do what it needs to do. Yeah, if and it were too simple, it'd be yeah, unusable. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So the, and the final block would be um, so that middle block um, training support etc. Just just all based on an hourly or daily rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of that can be done from a distance. Ideally, also depending on the size of the organization and the amount of people, we start on location. Mm-hmm. But uh, once the start has been done, most things can be done from a distance. Cool. And the third block would be um, the hardware, optional peripheral hardware. Oh, yeah. And uh, we don't really sell that ourselves because that would only increase the price. So we advise on what to buy and what will work nice. with the system. And we're talking about uh, when you want to use the barcode system. So barcode printers, um, barcode scanners, Mm -hmm. those kind of things, but also digital scales and calipers that can connect to the system and then send their data automatically to the fields where you want it, which is uh, very useful in the uh, specialist and lab module. Uh, With this running on Windows computers, um, have you had anybody run this on like a Windows Surface Pro? Seems like an ideal tablet kind of device for something like this. (laughs) Um, I have had one or two people that had run it on an Apple computer running Windows. Oh, I see. Yeah. I see. So that's the only thing. Yeah. I think it would run great on probably the Windows Surface tablet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So we're using um, myself, but also other clients, we're using Windows tablets. Yeah. And it runs on it. Okay. Because... Um, because we started so early many years ago, we were actually using tablets a long time ago. Yeah. About 15 years ago, we were using Fujitsu Siemens reflective screen tablets. They were pretty big. I mean, in a sense that they had a big screen. And the more sunlight hit it, the better you could see it. And with an OtterBox, uh, rough casing around it was perfect. But these are no longer made. But that was a larger screen. So the whole system was kind of created before the tablet revolution yeah yeah. so currently our system uh it can run on tablets 
but it's not really well designed, super designed for tablet features. Sure. And sure. that is one thing that we're also looking at, of course, in the future, or at least this year, we try to have a more tablet um, adapted um, uh, field module right. for that as well. Yep. You were you were tech hipsters using tablets before tablets were cool. Yeah, and that's uh, how you say that? that. That puts it a little uh, back uh, as far as tablet uh, design <laughs> yeah. go goes. Nice. Yeah, but most of this, I mean, it is an important part, but um, uh, the whole field part is, of course, only uh, a small. Well, it's an it's an important part, but it's a small part of the whole system. So yeah, it's right. not just field data recording. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine in this country on like a CRM project, I mean, a lot of data is collected. Obviously, the artifacts are collected in progress in the field, but like you said, I mean that is a that is a few weeks worth of time that yeah. you're excavating, yeah. and then you're spending months, if not years, in the yeah. lab, yeah. you know, exactly. continuing with the yeah. system. Yeah, so. that's why we have put a lot of effort also in all those parts. So the the, the sorting, of course, but the images, the integrated GIS, mm -hmm. and especially also the specialist and lab module, mm -hmm. which allow a whole lot, and then all the features that um, are already in here some analytic features but also for um, curation there's some repository and mm -hmm. box administration features which will be uh, enhanced uh, later also with a big pro new project coming up okay what about uh, I think it's my final question on the system what about getting your data back out if somebody wants to stop using the system yes that is actually very simple yeah there's uh, several ways to get your data out and export very easily okay um, you can export rough data if you know the structure of the database and know how these tables connect, you can have the exact copy of the database nice. in an access database, for instance, yeah. uh, without a password and available to use however you like. Okay. But every screen in the system has been set up the same way. You see a large uh, data grid and uh, that is usually the result of a query that shows the data which is relevant for that particular screen uh, as a query result, uh, okay. taking all the data from the different tables where it is stored. And every data grid has export functionalities. So everything that is currently visible in the data grid can also can always be exported in one of the most uh, common formats. Mm. And you can filter and sort and make a subset and then export that. Okay. Uh, so it's not just a tabular info, but that is also the same with the GIS. So the GIS data that has been generated in our GIS module can be exported um, in the most common formats, including, of course, shapefiles, um, MAP info, uh, yeah. AutoCAD, DXF, etc., um, KLM, or nay, was M. Yeah, KML. KML, yeah. Yeah, yeah. KLM's an airline. Yes, not not <laughs> not our national pride of airline. <laughs> so here in the United States, have you had anything uh any interesting projects come up or people using this in some 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 fun ways? Yeah, well the start is always difficult and like I said we've been here now uh, since 2013 so it's about this is the seventh year yeah. here yeah. and uh, things start to finally pick up so all throughout all these years people always showed a lot of interest but um, they're very careful with making decisions and snowball effect is very uh, important word of mouth yeah so I have a few clients here and there throughout the country some universities Within the next few months, we're starting a very yeah. big project, new project in the state of Georgia, okay. where um, uh, at least five organizations are involved. 
which are Georgia DOT, uh, Georgia DNR, which houses the Georgia SHPO, mm -hmm. um, the, and the three main universities that are together the repository for the states, yep. which is uh, UGA in Athens, Georgia Southern in Statesboro, and University of West Georgia in Carrollton. I've been to the one in Athens a lot. That's where okay. I got my master's Oh, yeah, degree. that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a big project uh, where um, this group of users and organizations have adopted the system mm -hmm. to um, implement and to try to achieve uh, a certain form of standardization statewide. Okay. And this involves not just um, the adaptation, adaptation, uh, of the system, but also adaptation of the system. Uh, we're going to add a lot of new features. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> One of the things is we're going to add a new separate uh, collection management module wow. okay. that will have a lot of a lot more collection management features than the ones that are currently in the system. And we are going to expand certain of the already existing features. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that we are going to add is a um, uh, more features that allow quick and easy data entry for very repetitive data uh -huh. and adaptations to uh, better deal with phase one survey projects. And that is also part of that repetitive data where you have maybe a whole bunch of um, transacts with uh, shovel tests. Yeah. So where this kind of data can be generated very quickly and instantaneously. Nice. Yeah. So that's cool. going to be an interesting project that allows us uh, a lot more development. Well, maybe we can get a report later this year on yes. how that's going. Definitely. Because I'm sure I will see you at another conference. I think so, yeah. <laughs> After that gets going. So. How is that, next month? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. All right, so where can people go to find this? What's the website? How do they get a hold of you? Yeah, they can go to interisreg.org. So okay. it's interis with double R, R-E-G dot okay. org. Okay, we'll have that in the show notes for this yep. episode. Yep. So please check that out. And uh, thanks, Michael, for being on the Architect Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.arcpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.